um, we're on a series going through 1 Samuel, and I just, this is one of my favorite books in the Bible, if you're allowed to have that. Uh, this is mine. I, I, the first time I really went through it, I was a, I was a grade 9 Bible teacher, and uh, 1 Samuel was one of the books that, uh, that was in the curriculum, and I just fell in love with the book at that time, and love that we have a chance to go through it again. We're all the way now in 1 Samuel 24, so we're coming to the end of the book, and uh, this chapter is going to be about, we've heard lots about Saul and King David, and uh, Saul was the first king over Israel, and uh, he was disobedient to God, and so God rose up another king, King David. Now, Saul didn't like King David much and wanted to kill him. And so we're going to pick up that story. We're only going to put a few verses on there, but if you want to see the full story, it's in 1 Samuel 24. We're going to go through verses 1 to 20. We'll skip a few verses, but read most of it. Uh, So this is how the story goes. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of the En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Well, that's an awkward moment for uh, all concerned. Uh, So now is your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power. So here's this golden moment. David already knows that he's chosen to be king. David's trying to kill him. And it looks as though God has brought Saul in for David to assert his power, kill his enemy, his arch enemy at this point, and seize the throne, the throne that God had promised to give him. So... uh, So today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power uh, to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. Incredible. Incredible. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him, then shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. Isn't that incredible? When David had finished speaking, this is now verse 16, Saul called back, is that really you, my son, David? Like, that's weird. I'm trying to kill my son. But anyways, uh, it's the language. Then he began to cry, and he said to David, 
you are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. And that's what we're going to be spending this morning talking about. You have repaid me good for evil. And then verse 20, and now I realize that you are surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. This is an amazing moment in the history of Israel and really in the formation of David being a godly man. So what's the message that we see in this passage? Uh, fully honor authorities because God has established them. So uh, I'm sure that you've had bosses that haven't been great, parents that haven't been great, politicians aren't exactly ideal. Uh, none of them, as far as I can tell, have tried to kill you. Uh, you can let me know, that would be a story. You could get you up here to tell, but I don't think any of them have tried to kill you. And David has a leader in his life who's trying to kill him and brings 3,000 soldiers to do so. And his response is, the Lord has established this anointed one over Israel. Far be it from me to uh, take matters into my own hands and assert my own justice. You guys, this is shocking. It's just absolutely shocking. Uh, think of what it takes for you and I to get insulted. Um, now I, I told the story, it just comes to mind as I'm, I'm thinking about this. So uh, in my old church, this would never happen in this church. Is my old church bad? You know, no, I'm joking. But, uh, but you know, my old church, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm walking into the auditorium, and it's a large church, lots of people there, so I don't know everybody. And uh, I'm, I'm walking in, and somebody comes up to me and says, uh, uh, do you hate me? And I remember thinking in my head, you know, I've never thought of you. <laughs> but I didn't say it out loud. I don't even know who you are. And so, uh, you know, but I've been trained. So I go, uh, no, why do you ask? And she says, uh, well, every time you look at me, you look mad. And I remember thinking in, in my head, you know, this is my face. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry for my face. <laughs> this is how I look when I walk. <laughs> And so, uh, God bless her. I mean, she has some, you know, maybe there's some issues going on there. So, but it's interesting, isn't it? That I didn't have 3,000 men, you know, <laughs> with an assignment to kill her. I looked normal and was an offense to her. You know, it's amazing, isn't it, how far we've gone to what insults us. It's amazing. Uh, you could make the argument that Saul deserves to be uh, wary of David. But it seems like if our boss does just one little thing, or a politician disagrees with us, or our parents, you know, say no, that this is cause for revolt. Romans 13.9 says this, sorry, 13.1, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, Forget this, there is no authority except that which God has established. Wow. So think of those bosses and parents and government officials. This verse suggests 
that God has established every one of them. Well, that's interesting. Because I would think that God only establishes the good ones, otherwise known as the ones who agree with me. But it seems to say that God establishes all authorities. And because he established them, we should submit to them because in so doing, we're submitting to God. This is the message of 1 Samuel 24, reinforced in the Bible. So uh, what does this mean then in how you and I are to relate to the governing authorities in our lives? How do we relate to them? Is it kind of the, we're insulted by a microaggression? What if they really are doing something wrong? There's been a number of laws that have been passed that I think are horrible laws, absolutely horrible, thoroughly unhelpful for Canada. I think, really, really unhelpful. I think it was a way to get votes. That's my opinion. So what do I do to that? Do I say, uh, I I resist you and stand against you? That sounds like an appropriate thing to do. Standing up for justice? Sounds like the right thing to do. What about uh, when your boss is having a bad day? Or maybe if it's a really bad boss, a good day. But, uh, but, they're, but they just malign you. Maybe they take credit for your work to their superior. Uh, rip you off in some way. What should you do in that moment? Should you stand up for yourself? Doesn't that sound right to do? You don't want evil to go away unchecked. So maybe you should stand up for yourself. Tell somebody else how you've been wronged. Make a deal out of it. Seems like an appropriate response. I think this is super challenging. How are you and I going to behave in the face of authority figures who, if I can be subtle, are less than ideal? What do we do? What have you done? Is this a call to passivity? And is what David's example is about is that what good Christians do is they, and we'll get to this passage in a moment, I think it's misquoted, but we'll get there in a sec, but do we turn the other cheek? And if somebody does bad to us, we just let them do worse for Jesus. Like, is that, is that what's being suggested in David's example? Is that what good Christians do in the face of evil is they kind of roll over and let it happen, and maybe pray. Now, uh, I would like us to look at Matthew chapter 5, and this one will be on the screen. And we're going to look at this. I, I want to credit uh, Daryl Johnson, who, uh, who used to be a, a pastor at First Baptist. I listened to him give a regent lecture on this, and this was just incredible to me, and so I'm stealing that from him. And I've been eager to share it with you because I've just not heard a better treatment of this passage in any commentaries or anything that I've read. I just think this is amazing. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing this with you. Let's put it up on the screen. Matthew 5, 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye 
and tooth for tooth. That's the, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I think that's how uh, uh, lots of us live. The, the fancy phrase for this is lex talionis, and it means the law of retaliation. Now, uh, when you read that, you should understand that when that was mentioned, I believe I have the verse there, Exodus 21, that's from the Bible. Now, what you need to know is that eye for eye and tooth for tooth was an upgrade to the society at that day. Because what was ruling that society was something called revenge. And so God instituted something uh, that was for judges to employ. Not for you to take matters into your own hands, but that there would be an advocate on your behalf dealing justice to you. So this was a replacement for revenge. I think a very good replacement. Trying to bring justice in the place of people taking matters into their own hands. And it was often not eye for eye. It was you do a little, I'm going to do a lot back. So this is an upgrade. I don't think it's been erased. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, uh, that word is tunic, it's your undergarment, uh, hand over your coat as well. So in that culture, you had basically, aside from something on your head and sandals, you had two pieces of clothing. It had an undergarment and a cloak. That's it. And in the Old Testament, it says that if you uh, take someone's cloak in... Uh, uh, oh, I can't think of the word, but uh, as, a, as a way to uh, keep something until somebody pays you back, don't keep it past the evening or else they'll get too cold. And so what, you weren't even supposed to take anyone's cloak long term. And this verse says, if they take your undershirt, take your cloak as well. This is, uh, this is different. And if anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with them two miles. Uh, what this is referring to is that soldiers at the time could enlist you as their slave for a mile. That's what they were allowed to do. So they're marching. They've been marching for a long time. They can call you, and you have an obligation to walk and to carry their stuff for a mile. You can be enslaved for a mile. And this says, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And remember the opening line, uh, do not resist an evil person. So we're not some, talking about somebody who just wants a loan in their good friends. This is an evil person. Don't resist them uh, if they want to borrow from you. So... At first glance, we can see this passage looking like it's describing passivity. That somebody does something bad to you, and you let even more bad happen to you, and Jesus is glorified. Uh, I would suggest to you that the answer is no. 
Romans 12, 29 says to overcome evil with good. The only way you can overcome evil is with good. Now let's go through those four and talk about how that's true. And a careful reading of the text I think is remarkable. We're going to go in reverse order. We're going to start with lending money to evil people. Uh, it says here uh, to not ignore their requests. Give to the one who asks you. So passivity would be uh, just ignore the moment. Uh, you know, whatever street corner we have in Vancouver of, a, of, a, of somebody impoverished asking for money, you just, you just ignore them. Hope they go away, pretend you're busy adjusting something, and uh, just pretend the moment didn't happen. It says, give to the one, so this is already proactive, and then do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The idea here is do not ignore the requests, even of evil people, but give freely. Do not ignore the requests of an evil person, but actually give to them freely. I said this example before because it stuck in my head, and it's, a, it's about a 35-year-old uh, a example. I remember one of my mentors saying to me, Greg, if, uh, if somebody asks for 20 bucks and you knew it was for smokes and beer, uh, would you give it to them? And I remember going, oh, man. No, yes. No, yes. Depends on the circumstance. I don't know. I didn't know how to answer it at all. I'm not sure I know any better now. But this passage gives me a clue. Uh, think about uh, the paycheck that you get. Is everything that you spend your money on good and godly and righteous? But your father gives that to you through your bosses, employers. You're misspending his money all the time. I am. And so in keeping with justice, give to other evil people. Because <clears throat> we're not really any better. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Number two. Uh, and give freely, by the way, without, without taxing them or without interest. That's what the Bible would tell us to do, is to give without interest. Don't get any benefit out of this. Just bless an evil person. Uh, I would venture to say one of the most freeing experiences in my life and Debbie's life is that uh, we have a practice of giving to people who don't deserve things like us. And whenever you give to somebody and you know full well you don't deserve them, something of God's freedom comes into your heart. Because when you give in mercy, you sow in, when you sow in mercy, you receive in mercy. And it sets you free. But don't worry, it gets worse. Let's look at number two. <laughs> um, walk. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So you can be forced, and rightly so, to do something that, that's, you know, that a soldier wants you to do, and you should do that. Don't resist that. Well, that sounds okay. But uh, here's where it turns 
from passivity to overcoming evil with good. This is the churn. Volunteer to go twice as far. Now it's switched from doing what you have to do, uh, being enslaved by a soldier. Now you're leading the moment. Now you're in charge of that moment. You can make me go one, but I can go two. You can only make me go one. I'll do two. I'm in charge of this moment. By my sovereign God, I am free to serve you beyond what you deserve or even can demand of me. I'm that free. And I overcome evil requests with goodness. This isn't passivity. This is now taking a moment and taking charge of the moment with goodness. Going an extra mile, as the saying goes. Isn't that powerful? If we volunteer to go further, we shift from passive compliance to active love, and we go on the offense. But the offense isn't simply eye for eye. No, I give you the opposite. And now I'm leading the moment in Jesus' name. And this isn't about me rolling over at all. Are you following how this is true? To reinforce it, tunic. It doesn't say, let him sue you for more. It doesn't say that. If you get sued for your tunic, then, you know, know that he can also sue you for his cloak. The op- it's not saying that at all. It's saying, uh, give him more. So he sued you for an undershirt. Give him your cloak as well. You give him your cloak as well. You do more than make it right. More than eye for eye. Go above and beyond what's demanded of you by the law, and you go, you go beyond that, and you overcome even your own evil with something better. The story of Zacchaeus, of course, comes to mind, doesn't it? That if I've wronged anybody, four times as much I'm going to give back. This isn't just about uh, doing what's required. I'm now moving beyond that and walking in goodness and righteousness and love. I'll give you more than what you deserve. This is a different way of living. And finally, slap. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. I won't ask for volunteers, but if you are a... uh, I'm left-handed, so it doesn't work for me, but most people in the world... Are, uh, are right-handed. And so, uh, so churn, how does it say? Uh, churn to them the other cheek in the, oh, I, I'm going to get this backwards, so just work with me because I'm dyslexic. But, but the, way that it, the way that it works is that uh, churn to the right cheek also. I think that's how it goes in the other version. Sorry, I should have written it down. But the idea is, is that it's not a slap this way, it's a slap this way. Because when you churn the other way, do you get it? It would be then the, it wouldn't be a backhanded slap. Uh, the point is, is that this is just shameful. This is what you do to servants. This isn't about a fight. This is about a condescending, shameful slap. But here's what it says. 
It says, turn to him, not just let him. Turn to him. Now, you're now in charge of the moment. And you're now making an offering. It's not let it passively happen to you. Offer. Offer the other. I have examples of this that I'm not, it wouldn't be appropriate to share here. But when somebody wrongs you and you offer to give them more, it's a different response. It's a kingdom response. The point is that we are not defined by the evil of others. Our freedom is that we can always choose love. And so what we find here is Jesus outlining uh, four scenarios of potential evil. And each response is not a passive response. It's an active response of love. And this is what we see with David. He is actively not doing what his men tell him to do. And he's covering his king, the anointed one, instead of capitalizing on the moment and bringing revenge, justice, by his own hands. So there are three levels of morality. The first isn't is immorality, but in conclusion, there are three levels of morality. The first is to act evilly. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but it's correct, to act wickedly. Uh, when good is done to you, just take advantage of it. I can't tell you how many people have come into our home and uh, we try to be nice to them and they just return, uh, uh, they just re- return our goodness which just taking advantage of us, just treating us like suckers. Uh, the first level of morality is immorality. You can live your life using other people. That's what you can do. That would be your morality. In any given moment, you're doing what you think is best for you, and you're just managing it. The second level of morality is to, is to fight evil. Now, there are, uh, are, are books written on this. If you've heard of a, of a theory called the just war theory, and the question is, is there such a thing as a just war? Is there a time when it's appropriate to take up arms against evil? I think there is. <clears throat> but it's tricky. So you look at countries, and you go, was that about oil? You know, what was that about? Is that really about justice? Looks a little suspicious. Mm. But uh, there seems to be, and of course you can cite, uh, you know, the world wars and those kinds of things, where you see uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an amazing theologian, who began with talking about um, Uh, letting evil run its course, and if you don't resist it, it'll just peter out to somebody who came back to oppose uh, Hitler, try to assassinate him. So, uh, you know, is there a moment when it's appropriate to, in a sense, fight evil with evil? I don't mean that, but fight with the same tools. 
is there, is there a point that that's appropriate? And the motive for this would be to minimize the impact of evil. Here's the problem with that. You end up engaging in a spiral that might never end. And what begins as justice uh, quickly devolves into you and I just fighting back to defend our personal rights, which has no nobility in that at all. And so I think that there are times when that's necessary. But we teach in our, our, our parenting course, um, I don't even know if we could teach this anymore because it's become so out of vogue. But in terms of corporal punishment, we've said that corporal punishment is a last response, not a first reaction. Uh, that what you see in some homes is the moment any small thing happens in the home, a child is corporally punished. It's a first response. It should be a last, uh, when, when all else fails, and I think it might never have to happen. But I think we can choose it as first. If we see injustice, we rise up. And it's not a judge being an advocate for us. We take matters into our own hands. We cloak it in the guise of justice. It's just revenge. Yeah. I think our heart is deceitfully wicked. But nevertheless, there are times. This is what's, um, what's spoken of. Well, I won't go there. And then in, uh, in verse, uh, then the last one is to overcome evil with good. In verse 16, Saul said to David, you are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. What's remarkable is that David was overcoming evil before he had any power. His men says, grab for power, this is your moment. And before he had any power, he was already leading Israel in his righteousness. I hear lots of people say this, and it's always bothersome to me. If I was the pastor, if I was the boss, if I was the politician, if I was the parent, this is what I would do. I'm thinking in your head, you have no idea what you're talking about. You just don't have any idea what you're talking about. Do you really think that when you get power, that your, your morality will change with the increase of power? Yeah. Do you really think that? Give me an example of that, of where more power makes you more righteous. If you're already motivated by a self-righteous form of justice, let's pray you don't get any power. And so what we see with, uh, with David is submitting himself to the rule of God yes. to purge himself from grasping for power so that when it is given to him, he's a safe leader. And this is remarkable. And so what looks like... Uh, Saul being unjust, which is for sure true, God is actually churning to shape the man that is going to be leading the nation of Israel. I think of the times that I think, at least, I've been unjustly treated. 
those have been the most formational times of my development as a Christian. Irreplaceable. Irreplaceable. And if I was only ever treated in the way that I think I should be treated, I'd be even more immature than I am today. And so what if God is actually has a bigger thing going on and he actually ha- is so powerful that he can use evil to fashion good in our hearts? That's how powerful he is. And that maybe we're resisting the wrong thing. We're resisting the evil in their hearts instead of the evil in ours. And then maybe God is using those exact moments to deliver us from evil. Why was David able to do this? He trusted in the Lord's sovereign hand. Can you imagine what it would be like if you and I lived this way? If Monday morning you get a, you, somebody slights you verbally, I mean, it's about as bad as it gets here, isn't it? A verbal slight. And you, res, you respond with a compliment. You take them out for lunch. You compliment them. You, uh, you do something good at work and give your boss all the credit for his leadership. You lead... Listen to me now. You lead before you have power. You follow me? You lead in righteousness before you have power. And you watch what happens in your workplace. You watch what happens. Watch what happens in your home when you feel unjustly treated. Watch what happens there. What if we would come... I just... uh, I love listening to Janice a few weeks ago talking about going to Ottawa and praying for our leaders. What if instead of Christians being known for what we're against, we would champion those people and do all that we can to see them become successful? That'd be different. Those of you who who do have power, What if you would use your power to make others great? And that if you're a boss, you treat your employees beyond what they deserve. And you don't make decisions purely based on the bottom line. Now, I know you've got to make a living, and uh, going bankrupt doesn't help anybody. I get that. But what if you made decisions, and the evil in your employees was overcome by your goodness? not by you coming down harder and teaching them a lesson, making them pay? What if there's a different kind of economy going on here that truly is freedom? The only way that you and I are going to overcome freedom is with goodness. And it sets our own hearts free, and it brings freedom to those around us. The worship team could come forward, please. Father, I thank you for giving us your example of in the face of evil, in the face of being spat on, mocked, and dishonored, you triumphed going through death 
and being resurrected in the power of the glory of God. I pray that you would give us the grace to follow your example, that you did not resist Roman authority, you conquered it through the resurrection of going through the shame, mocking it, and proving yourself to be King of kings and Lord of lords through your humble righteousness. Would you please give us the grace to follow your example? Would you set us free from evil, not simply by suppressing it, but by doing good? Father, we don't want to be known as a people who are just trying not to be bad. Would you help us be a people who actively love others in the name of our Lord Jesus?